This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Thank you for joining me here today. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. My pleasure. Could uh, you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in earth regeneration? Um, how I got interested in earth regeneration, um, I have a, a background in permaculture um, going back to around 2000 and, well, 2001 or so. I started studying some permaculture and um, I've been interested in the whole situation on the planet for longer than that, of course, and going back into the anti-nuclear movement and things like that. And of course, with the incredible threats that we see on all sides with uh, climate change and topsoil loss and water pollution, it just seems obvious that we need to do something. So. Uh, John Liu got my attention when I saw his documentary on uh, the restoration of the Loess Plateau in China and just the, the huge scale uh, of that. And then so I followed um, a little bit of, the, uh, of his work and the uh, ecosystem restoration camps. And I kept thinking, yeah, but that's not, that's not what I want. I don't want to just go off to a camp for 10 days and then come back and go, hmm, now what? <laughs> Um, I would rather get involved with something that seems like it has a potential to really be on the ground and and um, getting getting personally involved in a situation that has some long-term um, prospects. I looked around at what was going on in my area, Western North Carolina, and yeah, yeah, I could re I could remove lots of invasives um, from the forests and. Um, do work like that, but it didn't grab me. Um, and then my roommate at the time said, oh, have you heard of Joe Brewer and the Earth Regenerators? And I had not. So I looked it up and I was pretty promptly hooked. I just started watching all, all the interviews that I could see about Joe and I got on Mighty Networks and um, started signing up for courses and just getting immersed into the whole thing. And at a certain point, I felt like I was reading a novel where, you know, it was like a serial novel and that each post from Joe was just like, I'm on the edge of my seat. What's going to happen next? And uh, with the purchase of, um, of this land called um, Origen del Agua. And when that went through, um, I was just like so excited. And Joe, Joe started putting out words like, who's feeling the call? So I promptly typed in, I am. And then I started looking into the possibilities of Kamiya Barichara, and I finally made it here last July and stayed for two and a half months. I might have stayed longer if I had figured out how to work the, the airfares, uh, the, how, how to cancel my return flight without a big penalty. Wow, so you've been doing really interested in this stuff for quite a long time. Most well, of your life, yeah, it seems like, you know, 
it's or, not my whole life, but yeah, it's been a while. And how how have your views kind of changed over time? What is that? You know, do you feel more optimistic or less optimistic? How is that? Well, you know, I you? I feel like I kind of have a calling around water that um that I received in the form of uh, both a dream and an ayahuasca journey that followed one upon the other pretty pretty rapidly that um that you know this earth is in crisis and water is is the one thing that we you know we really don't value it we don't recognize how crucial it is for life if we did we wouldn't be pooping into water mm. and um so i saw you know i saw permaculture as a part of the solution or part of the answer to the water crisis um but i also felt as though you know, we needed much more of a focused movement to restore the water cycle and, um, you know, the the importance of of the work of Brad Lancaster. I became aware of that. And, um, you know, one thing I have to say is that when I read the contribution of Alpha, um, and uh, I think his name is Michael Kravick. Kravick? Kravick. Kravick. Okay. Um that I was, um, I was really pleased in a sense, you know, to realize that some of the things that most people think are direct results of, of um, fossil fuel combustion, climate change, are actually more due to the bad way that we've mismanaged water. So that if mm -hmm. we can learn to manage water properly and restore the small water cycle, um, we can prevent a lot of droughts and, uh, and floods and fires. Awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned Orien del Agua. Could you speak a little bit more about that site and what that is and what it looks like? Yeah. So the Orien del, del Agua is um, quite a bit higher in altitude than um, Barichara itself or the Bioparque. It's um, it's land that was uh, farmed, grazed, and severely eroded. It's very eroded. There's just a few little small scraps of forest on that land. But uh, with the work of creating, you know, barriers in terms of lines of stones, um, sticks, uh, whatever that you can place, mulch, um, and beginning to plant some hardy species to be able to regenerate that land would be pretty amazing because, um, you know, of course, we all know that you've got to go the higher spot on the landscape to begin doing restoration work. So it made perfect sense, made perfect sense to me. And are, are you seeing any impact there? Is it, is it working at all? It's beginning. It's beginning. And uh, I think at this point, there's been some efforts by uh, Jessica and Oswaldo and that they're bringing in high school students to do some of the work there, which I'm really happy to see because I think you know, we've got to involve um, young people in in doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. I think mm -hmm. the young people are super important. Yeah, but you know, at one time, at one point last last summer, um, when not that much of the work had really been done yet, but there was a um, a traditional feast that uh, that we all organized and invited not only the neighbors of the surrounding land, but also um, members of the seven families, the seven brothers and sisters. Uh, who had sold the land. And um, so, you know, to cultivate good relationships, but also to let people see uh, a little bit of the 
of the changes that were made. And Joe, uh, for one, was really excited because there was a maybe a 20-year-old young man who was very interested and curious in seeing what was going on there and that people were beginning to talk about you know, the legacy uh, that's being left to the next generation and that this farm family had owned this land but had allowed it to slip into this degraded state and um, that they were, they were really beginning to think more about you know, coming generations. So can you speak a little bit more about what your experience has been like with the local community here? What has your reception been like, you know, personally and sort of the project? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm always amazed at the warmth and generosity of the Colombian people and how accepting they, they seem to be of outsiders, which was not my experience when I was in Peru or Ecuador or um, Costa Rica particularly. But uh, but here there's such warmth, and I I think that the work that Joe has done on um, of community organizing and involving not just people who are coming from afar like um, many of us Earth regenerators, but the people who, um, for example, Camila and Vicky, who with their husbands had started the Bioparque, and um, other people like Felipe and Alejandra. Um, who have been deeply involved in um, the health of the community and the health of the watershed. And um, many, many of the people that, that came to the foundation meeting yesterday, uh, I just think that it's, it's beautiful to see how there is this embracing of this project that's, um, that's underway in all of its forms. And, and what would you have to say? Any words of advice to any earth, regenerator, earth regenerators thinking about coming down to Barichara? <laughs> well, words of advice. I mean, I feel privileged that I'm able to, to do this, that I can do this because I'm retired and um, I'm able to find a niche and find a role here. And I think that when you come to Barichara, it's not hard to find a niche, to find a place and a way that you can contribute. Sometimes you have to be a little patient with that process. Um, and at the same time, I want to emphasize that Earth Regenerator is a much bigger movement than just what's going on in Barichara, but that this can be kind of a flagship or a role model in a way for what can happen in, in, um, in other countries, other parts of the world. And the work that I see uh, you, Charles, and um, and Alpha, you know, doing with the watersheds in California, for example, I think that's very inspiring. And I think it's beautiful that uh, there's the project incubator with the Earth Regenerators, where anybody who has a a project can get some support, get some actually expert consultation from folks like you. Great. Um... So what I was really hoping to talk to you about are biogas digesters. I know you're Yippee! quite a fan. So what is a biogas digester? Well, I have heard a biogas digester being referred to as kind of an extra extension of a cow's digestive system. Because in, cow, um, in the cow uh, belly are various kinds of bacteria which live there and continue to live on in their poop, 
which are um, acetogenic and methanogenic bacteria. So as you might guess, one of them produces acids and the other produces uh, methane. And so um, without any other kind of addition of microorganisms, just taking cow manure or uh, horse manure, goat manure, these kinds of manures, um, you can, in fact, with the addition of water uh, and in an anaerobic environment, you can produce methane gas. So it's a fairly simple technology, and it's been around since, um, well, I think 1857 in India. And after that, for a while, it was uh, the way that they used to keep the, the street lamps lit in England was with biogas. Fascinating. So how, how might this work? for uh, This could work for a, a family home? Exactly. Well, it's um, there. There are many things that can be feedstocks for a biogas digester, and I only recently learned that um, you get the highest methane production, actually, when you put undigested food into it instead of manure, which kind of makes sense because in the cow belly, you you have undigested food um, going in and the bacteria do their work and then the cow emits all kinds of huge amounts of methane, which we can't really capture uh, in the form of their, their burps and their farts. But um, so pure sugar uh, or sugars and oils and um, other foodstuffs, uh, waste, waste foods can be used and is being used in India uh, on rooftop biogas digesters to provide methane gas for cooking. And uh, there's no manure that's being used in those except as a starter um, just to give it the right inoculation of the microbes. But coming back to the situation on the ground in um, South America, many of the countries have warm enough climates because uh, to get good methane production, you've got to, you don't want to have something dealing with temperatures around freezing, really uh, really anything below about 60 degrees is gonna inhibit the methane production. So you get excellent methane production um, in this type of a climate most of the, most of the time. And um, that um, also, since you don't have to protect it from cold weather, you can just have a very, very simple and inexpensive um, sack made out of plastic, greenhouse plastic. It's a kind of a tube that on one end has the in intake, which can be, as I said, either it can be food or it can be manure um, and mixed with water. And, and it has to be enough water to make it kind of a slurry. And so pig manure works really well for that and has a pretty high methane production compared to cows um, or other animals. And the, um, so there's the intake and then there's the, the uh, output. And besides this wonderful product of methane for cooking, it also produces an excellent fertilizer. The action of the microbes on the feedstocks uh, gives you a better liquid fertilizer than what you would get from, well, just say composted manure. So is this something that you could use for human waste, or is it only for animal waste? 
Well, as a matter of fact, in the city of Oakland, California, the East Bay Municipal Utility District has created a giant biogas digester, which uh, functions as a sewage treatment plant and generates, um, it's on such a scale that they're using the methane to generate electricity with it. And they have enough electricity to run all the operations of the plant and still have more to sell. Well, that's so quite a big scale. What about at the sort of household scale? Can that work? You know, can you just it blow can. my toilet in there somehow? It can work that way. Uh, the cautionary note is that human uh, human waste is more pathogenic than you know most uh, animal manures, and so it has to be treated a little more carefully. There, are, there are two va- basic varieties of biogas digester. One is the um, the mesophilic, and the other is the thermophilic, higher temperatures. So the higher temperature that's reached within the biodigester, the more rapidly you get methane, the more methane you get, and also the more safe the end product would be. Mm. So, um, but it takes a little more work to to run a thermophilic operation. Um, if you're on a large scale, like in Oakland, California, um, that's not a problem. And they can use some of their gas uh, to add heat as needed on those very foggy days in Oakland uh, that they sometimes have with cold temperatures. But here, um, the, the thermophilic is not encountered as much. And um, probably the best application at this moment in time working with farm families on a do-it-yourself kind of model, it's probably to be safe and stick with the animal, animal manures. Great. So I know you toured um, a biogas digester the other day. Yes. Um, I saw some pictures. Very interesting. I'm wondering, uh, it looked like quite a simple system for a residential home. Yes, it um, is. What was you? What 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 is the cost that goes into it? What what do you need to actually build one of these things? Right. So th- this particular one, um, besides just being the 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 tube of greenhouse plastic, uh, they had taken the additional steps of um, covering it, which is actually a very good idea because you don't really want random branches, you know, dropping on there and puncturing it. You don't want random animals getting in there. Um, so it's very good to have an enclosure. So they had a pretty simple enclosure built out of chicken wire with posts and, um, you know, another big piece of plastic as a cover for it. And um, the costs, uh, we didn't get an actual cost for it, but my guess is that those materials don't look very expensive. They're, depending on how you, how you site it and uh, how much of, of the structure you want to have buried underground could lead to, you know, some labor costs. So there's the, the labor of digging a trench, in this case, about five meters long. Not a huge one. They basically are using the waste from three pigs and a couple of goats. Um, so five meters in length, um, and then I've forgotten what the diameter is. It's something about f- maybe when fully inflated might be about um, three or four meters in width. Okay. So yeah. kind of kind of a long kind of a long tube lying in a trench. Um, the trench has to be very carefully prepared. Uh, so that there's a slight gradient going downhill um, so that you have your outflow uh, going Mm -hmm. in the downhill side. Um, 
and then you, you're basi- basically paying for some PVC pipes, and um, you do have to buy a, a little specially made stove because it's a little bit different from propane. And um, but yeah, all so reports quite, are quite low cost. So yeah, it's some, pretty low cost. Some some plastic, some pipe, and then That's you right. need a special you know uh, ho- stove to be actually able mm-hmm. to burn it. And so they were using this for for cooking fuel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a little bit of a built-in challenge uh, in that the, the pig pens were quite a bit lower than the house. We might have gone down about, I don't know, 50 stairs made out of tires stuffed with uh, rocks and, and soil. Um, and so they had, to, they had to pipe it up. And so there's a, a loss of pressure when you're having to go uphill. And um, I didn't see any sandbags uh, lying on top of the digester, but that's a typical way to increase the pressure so that you get a better out, um, you know, a better flow of, of gas. And is that the sort of normal use for these sort of home systems would be for cooking? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, super. Yeah. In China, um, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Coleman lanterns, right? With the little mantle made Absolutely, of ash. Yeah. yeah, and so those run on gas. And you can run a basically a, a lantern. This is how most of the Chinese, somewhere around 7 million Chinese peasants with, um, with biogas digesters. It's how they uh, do all of their, all of their um, lighting as well as their cooking. And, and what, do you, what do you see as the potential for biogas digesters? What would you like to see? Where do you think they should be used more and where, where would be an appropriate place for them? Yeah. Well, of course, I would love to see um, the thermophilic biogas digesters become widely adopted as a method of sewage treatment and gas production. Um, in some places, there are people, there's a high reliance on lenya, which is the you know wood that people go out and cut just to cook on an open fire. For example, in uh, Guane, it's very normal for people to do a good deal of cooking over over a wood fire. And um, I think it would be a a terrific way to stop that type of reforestation, uh, deforestation, um, to have biogas digesters for cooking. And of course, less reliance on propane as well. And, and all the respiratory problems that come with the wood Absolutely. cooking fire. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're right on top of it. Women and children suffer from a lot of respiratory ailments in many parts of Latin America. And, and so this system that you toured the other day, would you say the people were happy with it and they would they were quite Absolutely. Happy? Yeah. They've had um, they've had the system for 2 years and uh, the name Green Power was mentioned and I think it was stamped on the stove, uh, the little stove that they had that they had bought to go with it. It was a two burner stove, and um, so Samara happily lit the stove and showed me what a big flame it gives and plenty of pressure there. Um, she did say that when it's been cold weather for a while, um, the gas production can drop. And uh, so they do have a they do have a propane stove as well as a backup. As a backup, yeah. 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 Well, great. Is there anything else you'd like to add about biogas digesters that I didn't ask you? Well, actually, the output, um, um, the 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 liquid fertilizer that they give, is one of is one of the best products. And uh, just to see the kind of 
huge um, corn, huge, healthy, strong-looking corn plants that they had there, and, uh, and the, the chard that was like waist-high and giant. I was like, wow. You know. So they use that all on site. They're just taking that as their that essentially yes. like turning that waste product into a resource. They're getting gas from it, but then they're That's also right. getting this amazing fertilizer with them they're using in their garden. That's absolutely right. And uh, the place that um, oh, I should say Paul uh, is a man who has an interest in biogas and will be having um, I did some fundraising in the US to to uh, to bring a thousand dollars here for the promotion of biogas, and he's the first person on the list because he has a good bunch of animals, and also because there's a a farm that is kind of a collective farm of twelve families that is um, right there to use that wonderful biol, the liquid fertilizer. Sounds like an incredible technology. I was really excited to learn a bit more, and um, hopefully I can see one in action fairly soon. I hope so, too. All right. Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Thank you.